0: Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy.
1: The very presence of a biosimilar competitor could lower prices for the entire market, even with very low take-up.
0: I'm your host, Alan Weil. Lowering prescription drug prices is a hot topic. Spending on biologic products, which includes most vaccines and gene therapies, was estimated at $125 billion in the United States in 2018, representing about a quarter of total pharmaceutical spending. Biosimilars follow on products to biologic drugs with essentially the same molecular composition to produce comparable clinical effects are viewed by many as a way to promote competition and bring down prices, much as has occurred with generic drugs. But the biosimilar market is young with half of the 10 key product classes seeing market entry in 2018 or later. Understanding the evolving market for biosimilars is the topic of today's Health policy. I'm joined by Ariel Dora Stern, an associate professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. Stern and her co-authors published a paper in the June 2021 issue of Health Affairs examining how quickly biosimilars and follow-on products gained market share and the subsequent trajectory of drug prices. We'll explore those findings in today's conversation. Dr. Stern, welcome to the program.
1: It's wonderful to be here, Alan. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This is a topic of great importance, but not broadly understood. So let's start with the basics. What is a biologic drug and what are biosimilars?
1: I'm so glad you asked because I think it's really important to start any discussion by understanding why these products are different and therefore why they're separately regulated in the first place. Um, And by the way, biologic drugs are often also referred to simply as biologics. And in Europe, regulators often use the term biological medicines or biological medicinal products. And all of these refer to the same thing. So for the listeners, if you hear any of these, we're talking about the the same set of biologic drugs. So whereas traditional small molecule drugs like statins are chemically synthesized, biologic drugs are usually produced through biotechnology and a living system. So they might be derived from microorganisms, from plant cells, or is, as often the case, animal cells. Um, And these are products that include therapeutic proteins, monoclonal antibodies, and vaccines, which of course we've been hearing a lot about lately. And Biologics are are complex, large molecules, and they're typically difficult to characterize completely. And this is because, relatively speaking, they're big. Um, Whereas a traditional so-called small molecule drug typically has a molecular weight of just a few hundred Daltons, and that's just the way that chemists measure the size of molecules, a biologic drug can be 10 to even 1,000 times larger. So these are simply much more complex molecules, and therefore more complex products. And in the U.S., the FDA defines biosimilars as the products that are highly similar to and have no clinically meaningful differences from existing FDA-approved reference products, so from existing biologic drugs. For simplicity, Alan, um, we can think about biosimilars as an analog to generic drugs, which are just follow-on products in the small molecule drug setting. But of course, there are some important differences, which I'm excited to talk about.
0: Yeah. So most of us are familiar with generic small molecule drugs in the sense that, you know, they're pretty much the same and they're a lot cheaper. Um, and that happened as a result of some regulatory uh, decisions, some legislative decisions. Talk to us about the regulatory regime for biologics and how that compares to the regime for small molecule drugs.
1: Yeah, so the main thing to know is that the biologic regulatory regime, or rather the biosimilar regulatory regime is separate, which is what makes it so interesting and important to understand how it's working. Um, The separation is because of the inherent complexity of these products, which we just discussed. And the difficulty, until really quite recently, of demonstrating that these biologic drugs are, in fact, highly similar to the reference products that they're meant to compete with. So for small molecule drugs, generic entry has been around for quite a long time. Uh, In fact, it goes back to a 1984 piece of legislation, the 1984 Drug Price Competition and Patent Term Restoration Act, which many of us have have talked about and know as the Hatch-Waxman Act, which is named after its sponsors. Uh, The act paved the way for generic competition in the United States as we know it, but, and this is important, it explicitly excluded biologic drugs. And in all fairness, at the time, there were many fewer of them, and researchers simply didn't have the technology to demonstrate their molecular equivalence to reference products. So this is why we needed a new and ultimately completely separate regulatory pathway for approving biosimilars.
0: So there's sort of a clinical side to this and an economic side, right? The clinical side is small molecules are simpler. We have a lot of confidence in what the generic market should look like. Along come these new things called biologics. We're not so sure that the follow-on drugs are going to be as comparable as generics have been in the small molecule world. We set up a whole new regime for it, primarily around clinical issues, But then that means we haven't carried with us the economic regime, which has to do with market entry and pricing and all the kinds of things that we rely upon for competition to bring the prices down in generic uh, drugs. So how you've emphasized the clinical side of this that we weren't sure early on. Now let's talk about the finance side. What is it about Hatch-Waxman that makes generic entry relatively uh, certain and how does that compare to the kind of entry we would need to get the same kind of competitive forces in biologics?
1: Sure. So the Hatch-Waxman Act basically only requires generic drug manufacturers to demonstrate something called bioequivalence, which means they don't need to run new clinical trials. They simply need to show, hey, I've got a pill, or perhaps it's an injectable solution, but often these are these are simple oral drugs. And this pill has in it, the same amount of the same active ingredient as the reference product. And so I don't need to, I don't need to run a new clinical trial to show that an identical copy of something is gonna have the same clinical effects. Um, with biosimilars, and especially very on, very early on in the launch of biosimilar products, there was a lot of uncertainty about how these products would actually work in practice. And especially with extremely large therapeutic proteins, even very small molecular differences that would be hard to detect could, in theory, have an impact on the clinical either safety or effectiveness of a drug. And so there was a big push early on to make sure that these drugs were tested in clinical trials to show that they were just as safe and effective as their reference products.
0: And that's critical to the prescribing behavior of clinicians who want to make sure that their patients get better and the purchasing behavior of patients who want to make sure when they get a generic that they're going to have the same uh, uh, outcome that they would if they had gotten the branded drug. So what are the commonalities and differences in how markets get disrupted by biosimilars relative to how they get disrupted by generics? Yeah, it's
1: a wonderful question. And actually from a competition economics perspective, the argument ultimately for biosimilars is actually comparable. The idea is that with just one manufacturer on the market, we don't and we won't see much price competition. And by the way, at first, we think this is a good thing for creating incentives for drug innovation. And in fact, it's the whole idea behind the patent system as we know it, which grants a monopoly to inventors for a limited period of time. And this is key in order to create incentives to to bring new products to market. And so the question is, in this case and in the case of generic drugs, how do we stimulate competition after that initial period of exclusivity? Um, For pharmaceutical products, it's actually governed both by patents as well as regulatory exclusivity. Once this period of exclusivity comes to an end, how can we stimulate competition? With biosimilars, a big difference is that they're really costly and complex to manufacture. With generic drugs and uh, at the risk of oversimplifying things, it's rather easy to set up a generic manufacturing operation. So, Alan, you and I, with a few million dollars and a few medicinal chemists, could actually go quite a long way if we had a, a clean factory that met basic good manufacturing uh processes through the FDA. So you're Um, saying if the
0: if the podcast doesn't work out, we've got another
1: podcast doesn't work out. uh, I've got a and if my academic career doesn't work out and and if your editorial career doesn't work out, I've got a great business idea
0: for Um, um, that's that's good for me to know.
1: Um, So I'm glad we have a plan B. But with biologic drugs, it's not that simple. So Alan, I don't think you and I could actually get into biologic drug manufacturing. With biologics, we need huge bioreactors, we need a ton of manufacturing expertise, we need really tight process controls, and we need a lot of money to pay for all of this. So because of these very high upfront costs, in particular, as compared to small molecule drugs, we don't expect to see as many follow-on entrants rushing to the market. And that's even after these exclusivity periods are over. Further complicating things is that in the US, uh, we have generic pharmacy substitution laws. And what that means is that pharmacists can automatically swap in a generic drug for the reference product once generics are available. Um, So what we see is generics really taking off once they are launched and stocked in pharmacies with biologics that's simply not the case yet. Uh, the FDA has created a pathway for showing that biologics are fully interchangeable with reference products, but none of the biosimilars that are currently on the market have actually achieved this level of designation yet. So the physicians and the healthcare facilities that use these drugs have to know about them and actually opt into using them, which is a really key difference. That requires some education of of the user facilities and of clinicians, um, and also uh, a lot of provider comfort with these products about their safety and usability, because first and foremost, we want to be using, we want providers to feel comfortable using medicines that are going to be safe and effective for patients.
0: Well, I want you to walk me through a couple of examples, because I know the market is quite young, that describe how the market gets disrupted. Uh, But we'll do that after we take a short break here.
1: The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu
0: forward slash hpl the rural health research gateway is your preeminent resource for free timely and relevant rural health research funded by the federal office of rural health policy visit gateway at ruralhealthresearch.org and subscribe to gateway's research alerts to be notified whenever new rural health research is published follow gateway on twitter and facebook at rhr gateway for key research findings this message was paid for by the rural health research gateway at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences.
1: Hey, everyone. Hope you're enjoying the show. We have exciting news for listeners of A Health policy. Next month's issue of Health Affairs is dedicated exclusively to border health and immigration. Our July issue features new research on migration and health policy at the US-Mexico border and beyond. You can pre-order your copy now at healthaffairs.org or click the link in the show notes.
0: And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Ariel Stern about the market for biologics and biosimilars. Before the break, you were describing the many steps required to disrupt the biologic market and how it's more complex Than the generic market for small molecule drugs. Uh, In your paper, you show the data of how markets transform for different drugs. And as we noted at the outset, there's not a lot of experience here. This is a young market with a limited number of classes. Now, I know every drug's different, but can you give me an example of a place where the disruption was sort of like what we would hope to see with generics, um, and maybe one where it didn't work out that way, and to the extent possible, uh, help us understand why the two stories are different.
1: Sure. So I will tell you, I guess, a tale of two biosimilars, Um, and these are actually products that are in our new health affairs study as well. Um, One is infliximab, which is one of the first biosimilars approved in the United States, and it's a drug that's used for rheumatoid arthritis patients. If you look a few months out, say five months after the first product was launched, biosimilars in the infliximab market only made up about 1% of the total drugs used in the United States. In fact, it was a bit less than 1%. On the other hand, we can look at a more recent biosimilar entrant like bevacizumab, which is a monoclonal antibody that's used in treating various cancers. And in that case, after just five months, the biosimilar accounted for 15 percent of the U.S. market by volume. And this drug only launched recently. So in our study, we could actually only observe the first five months of its use. Um, but this is already a, a massive 15-fold difference in, in the rate of adoption of these two products. So what's going on here? Well, we think that one of the reasons for this is simply that information about these products is more widespread than it used to be, and early data have been quite reassuring. We spoke earlier about early concerns about drug safety and drug effectiveness and the need for clinical trials because of that, you know, whereas a decade ago, Some parties were really worried about the safety and efficacy of biosimilars. We now have about 15 years' worth of data from Europe and about five years' worth of data from the U.S. experience with these drugs. And... The accumulation of evidence has really demonstrated that they're safe and they work well in patients, which is what we care most about. So that's one thing. Um, And then, of course, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the business case for these products. The the products paying for these drugs also care a lot about cost savings. Bevacizumab is a drug that payers and uh, therefore, by the way, taxpayers spend billions of dollars on every year. And if there is an alternative that costs even just a bit less, this can be really compelling. Um, Just by way of example, just 10% cost savings on something that a health insurer is spending $100 million per year on seems like a really attractive proposition. One thing that we do in the study is we look a bit more closely at the different types of payers, and we see a lot of heterogeneity in biosimilar take-up. To me, among other things, this suggests that there may be room for more education, room for targeted marketing. uh, and of course, room for for public policies that actually encourage their use. Because these take up, even though take up rates differ on average across products, they also differ within products by who's paying for them. And so this is something I'd I'd really, I, I look forward to learning more about.
0: Partly, you describe a story of a relatively new area where clinicians and patients may just be hesitant waiting for the data. But there is, as you noted, a public policy story here as well. Now, what we're looking for here, I assume, is a large enough market share for the entrant to not only offer uh, a lower price by that entrant, but also to force the reference drug to lower its price to retain its market share. Right. So you've got a hydraulic here where the the more leverage I offer as the entrant, the more the, the original market entrant says, wait a minute. Uh, If I'm going to keep my share, I've got to match that price or come toward it. What do we know about those two elements, the the market share as well as the pricing behavior of the original product?
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful question, Alan. And there's actually, uh, there's a fact lurking in there that's a little bit counterintuitive, which is simply that the very presence of a biosimilar competitor could lower prices for the entire market, even with very low take up. Um, and the reason for that is that the, the purchasing agreements for these drugs are often negotiated. So if a biosimilar comes onto the market and they say to um, you know a government buyer, uh, we'll, we'll offer you this price, uh, that buyer could then go back to the reference product manufacturer and say, hey, could you lower your price a little bit? And in fact, we we heard stories about this in another study I did looking at biosimilars in Europe. This is why we thought it was really important in this study to look both at the biosimilar share of the market, as well as what's going on with prices. Even with a relatively low share of use, biosimilars can put a lot of price pressure on the reference product manufacturer, um, which lowers prices across the board.
0: You know, you've made a number of references to Europe. And of course, in the pharmaceutical drug pricing debates, you hear a lot about we pay more than other countries. And can you play that story out a little bit with respect to biologics and biosimilars?
1: You know, it's it's a little bit difficult to compare. And part of that is because in the United States, it's a much more recent story than, than in Europe. And we're still learning about public policy in the U.S. context as well. Uh, Europe is actually about a decade ahead of the U.S. with respect to biosimilars. Uh, European regulators had a regulatory pathway in place for biosimilars back in 2003 and actually saw the first products come to market starting in 2006. In the United States, the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act was a 2009 piece of legislation but the first product wasn't approved until 2015. And actually something that we point out in in the article is that the majority of the currently marketed biosimilars have actually only been approved in the last few years. So we're really still in early days.
0: And given that we are in early days, you seem enthusiastic about this topic. What questions do you feel will get the answers to that you'll want to study uh, as the market matures? What don't we know now that we'll know a lot better in a couple of years?
1: Yeah, this is a really exciting time to be following the US market in particular, because uh, like you said, we're only just getting into the period of time um, where we really have enough data to understand what's happened to date. I think in the future, there will be all sorts of important healthcare policy and health economics questions to answer around, uh, and this is what I'm excited about, which public policies seem to best stimulate adoption Um, what determines how much competition arises. So why do we have some biosimilar markets that have multiple follow-on entrants and others that just have one and many that have zero, even though patents and exclusivity periods have expired? And then last but certainly not least, how do we ensure that these products become more accessible to U.S. patients? Because that's ultimately what we care about.
0: Yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier that you and I could start a generic small molecule business, but not a biologics. Um, I gather, you know, economists talk about barriers to entry, right? So you've got these regulatory ones, legislative ones, but you also have the financial ones. You said these are complex products, they're expensive to manufacture. So maybe relative to small molecule drugs, you actually need to lower the other barriers, if you want a robust competitive market, uh, that's something that maybe has to be handled differently for biologics than for generic uh, small molecule drugs.
1: Absolutely. And um, and I think that this isn't a, you only get to pick one approach uh here, you know, we have we have various levers we can pull that are that are likely to help stimulate competition. Some to greater degrees than others. What we know from Europe is that the more approaches that are used, the higher the adoption of biosimilars. Um, anything that helps buyers do procurement in a more informed way. Uh, like formal tendering processes, that seems to stimulate entry of both new manufacturers as well as the adoption of biosimilars. And we also know that I guess what you would think of as non-market interventions, things like education campaigns seem to matter. So I don't think it's, it's a one or the other approach. I think as we think about what levers we have, we we should think about multiple opportunities and then try to use the data to understand which work best as we as we look to stimulate competition moving forward.
0: Yeah. And you dropped this one sentence that I let pass where you said, you know, and the payment policy is different by payer. Uh, that's a very complex subject, but I just wonder if you could say a little more about that since that's obviously going to have a big effect on how these markets evolve.
1: Yeah. I think an important question to ask is who is the person ultimately negotiating with the manufacturer on drug prices. Um, You know, if if a hospital is procuring drugs and then billing an insurance company, that's slightly different than if the insurer is directly negotiating with the manufacturer or as is often the case in the United States, if there's a pharmacy benefits manager as an intermediary and something that we're hoping to do in follow-on work is actually look very closely at how that procurement is being done and by whom, and try to understand how these different incentives might matter. Um, For example, a hospital that's gonna get the same amount of reimbursement from an insurer, no matter what, for treating a certain cancer, will have a much stronger incentive to pay less for the cancer drug than if they were to pass through the costs of that cancer drug to the insurer. So, um, so you know, questions like this, I think, are going to be really important to think through as we try to understand these differences across different types of, of buyers and buyer organizations in their either reluctance or enthusiasm for adopting biosimilars.
0: Well, there's definitely more to study as this market evolves, and I'm looking forward to your work uh, over the years. I want to close by just asking a question about your own career. You have a PhD from the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, as do I, although mine's a master's, I don't have a PhD. Um, And you're an associate professor in a business school. A lot of health services research is done by economists and clinicians in medical schools and schools of public health. I just wonder if given the combination of your training and where you sit now in a business school, if you have any reflections on how that affects the approach you take to your research.
1: Yeah, I think this interdisciplinary approach, it really affects everything and every project I do. Um, I loved, as a doctoral student, basically asking applied health economics questions at a policy school. Because it forces you to be aware of the context of your research and all the external factors beyond the simple economics that shape what happens in the real world. I would say in many respects, coming to a business school was an easy transition in that way because it's just another setting where context is deeply important. Um, and, and frankly, where practically relevant research is valued. Uh, that said, of course, I think a lot more and talk a lot more about public policy and health policy in particular than many of my management scholar colleagues. But this perspective of, of always being a bit of an outsider and perhaps an interdisciplinary outsider is a fun one. And it's, one, it's a role I've enjoyed uh, over recent years.
0: Well, uh, thank you for your paper and describing it and this very complex market. I look forward, as I said, to seeing your research uh, in future years, knowing of your background and knowing that this is a topic that's going to evolve. Uh, Dr. Stern, thank you so much for joining me today on A Health Podacy.
1: Thank you so much, Alan. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Podacy health policy is produced by health affairs the leading journal for health policy research the team behind the show includes patty sweet jeff byers julia vivolo sarah kolk and sue ducat like the show subscribe to a health policy on apple podcast spotify stitcher google or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts thanks for listening and have a great morning day or evening